Chapter Twenty of the Story of Ab. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Magdalena Cook. The Story of Ab by Stanley Waterloo. Chapter Twenty: The Fire Country. It was light now, and the sun shone fairly on Ab's place of refuge. As his senses brought to him full appreciation, he wondered at the scene about him. He was in a glade so depressed as to be a valley. About it, to the east and north and west, in a wavering, tossing wall, rose the uplifting line of fire through which he had leaped, though there were spaces where the height was insignificant. On the south, and extended till it circled a trifle to the east, rose a wall of rock, evidently the end of a forest-covered promontory, for trees grew thickly to its very edge, and their green branches overhung its sheer descent. Coming from some crevice off the rocks on the east, and tumbling downward through the valley, was a riotous brook, which disappeared through some opening at the west. Within this area, thus hemmed in by fire and rock, appeared no living thing save the birds which sang upon the bushes beside the small stream's banks, and the butterflies which hung above the flowers, and all the insect world which joined in the soft humming chorus of the morning. It was something that Ab looked upon with delighted wonder but without understanding. What he saw was not a marvel. It was but the result of one of many upheavals at a time when the earth's cooled shell was somewhat thinner than now, and when earthquakes, though there were no cities to overthrow, at least made havoc sometimes by changing the face of nature. There had come a great semicircular crack in the earth, near and extending to the line of the sheer rock range. The natural gas, the product of the vegetation of thousands of centuries before, had found a chance to escape and had poured forth into the outer world. Something, perhaps a lightning stroke and a flaming tree, perhaps some caveman making fire and consumed on the instant when he succeeded, had ignited the sheet of rising gas, and the result was the wall of flame. It was all natural and commonplace for the time. There were other upleaping flame sheets in the surrounding region forever burning, as there are in northern Asia today. But Ab knew of these fires only from old Mock's tales. He stood wonderstruck at what he saw about him. But this man in the valley was young and very strong, with tissues to be renewed, and the physical man within him clamoured and demanded. He must eat. He ran forward and around, anxiously observant, and soon learned that at the western end of the valley, where the little creek tumbled through a rocky cut into a lower level, there was easy exit from the fire-encompassed and protected area. He clambered along the creek's rough descending side. He emerged upon an easier slope, and then found it possible to climb the hillside to the plain of the great wood. There must, he thought, be food of some sort, even for a man with only Oak's knife in his possession. There was the forest, and there were nuts. He was in the forest soon among the grey-trunked black mottled beeches and rough brown oaks. He found something of what he sought, the nuts lying under shed leaves, though the supply was scant. But nuts, to the caveman, made moderately good food, supplying a part of the sustenance he required. And Ab ate of what he could find, and arose from the devouring search and looked about him. He was weaponless, save for the knife, and a flint knife was but a thing for closer struggle. He longed now for his axe and spear, and the strong bow which could hurt so at a distance. But there was one sort of weapon to be had. There was the club. He wandered about among the tops of fallen trees, and wrenched at their dried limbs, 
and finally tore one away and broke off, later, with the prying leverage, what made a rough but available club for a caveman's purposes. It was much better than nothing. Then began a steady trot toward what should be a fair life again. There were vague paths through the forest made by wild beasts. As he moved, the man thought deeply. He thought of the firewall and could not with all his reasoning determine upon the course of its existence, and so abandoned the subject as a thing, the nub of which was unreachable. That was the freshest object in his mind, and the first to be mentally disposed of. But there were other subjects which came in swift succession. As he went along with a dog's gait, he was not in much terror, practically weaponless as he was. His eyes was good, and he was going through the forest in the daylight. He was strong enough, club in hand, to meet the minor beasts. As for the others, if any of them appeared, there were the trees, and he could climb. So as he trotted, he could afford to think. And he thought much that day, this perplexed man, our grandfather with so many greats before the word. He had nothing to divert him even in the selection of the course towards his cave. He noted not where the sun stood, nor in what direction the tiny headwaters of the rivulets took their course, nor how the moss grew on the trees. He travelled in the wood by instinct, by some almost unexplainable gift which comes to the thing of the woods. The wolf has it, the Indian has it, sometimes the white man of today has it. As he went, Ab engaged in deeper and more sustained thought than ever before in all his life. He was alone, new and strange scenes had enlarged his knowledge, and swift happenings had made keener his perceptions. For days his entire being had been powerfully affected by his meeting with Lightfoot at the Feast of the Mammoth, and the events which had followed that meeting in such swift succession. The tragedy of Oak's death had quickened his sensibilities. Besides, what had ensued latest had been what was required to make him in a condition for the divination of things. The wise agree that much stimulant or much deprivation enables the brain convulsions to do their work well, though deprivation gets the cleaner end. The asceticism of Marcus Aurelius was productive of greater results than the deep drinking of any gallant young Roman man of letters, of whom he was a patron. The literature of fasting thinkers is something fine. Ab, after exerting his strength to the utmost for days, had not eaten of flesh, and the strong influences to which he was subjected were exerted upon a man still practically fasting. For a time, the rude and earth-born child of the cave was lifted into a region of comparative sentiment and imagination. It was an experience which affected materially all his later life. Ever to the trotting man came the feeling which must follow fierce love and deadly action and vague remorse and fear of something indefinable. He saw the face and form of Lightfoot. He saw again the struggle, death-ending, with a friend of youth and of mutual growing into manhood. He remembered dimly the half-insane flight, the leaps across the deaded morass and, more distinctly, the chase by the wolves. The aspect of the fire country and of all that followed his awakening was, of course, yet fresh in his mind. He was burdened. Ever uprising and oppressing above all else was the memory of the man he had killed and buried, covering the face first so that it might not look at him. Was Oak really dead? he asked himself again. Had not he, Ab, as soon as he slept again, seen alive and well the close friend of his? He clung to the vision. He reasoned as deeply as it was in him to reason. 
As he struggled in his mind to obtain light, there came to him the fancy of other things dimly related to the death mystery, which had perplexed him and all his kind. There must be some one who made the rivers rise and fall, or the nut-bearing forests be either fruitful, or the hard reverse. Who and what could it be? What should he do? What should all his friends do in the matter of relation to this unknown thing? With this day and hour did not come really the beginning of Ab's thought upon the subject of what was, to him and those he knew, the supernatural. He had thought in the past, he could not help it, of the shadow and the echo. He remembered how he and Oak had talked about the echo, and how they had tried to get rid of the thing which had more than once called back to them insolently across the valley. Every word they shouted this hidden creature would mockingly repeat, and there was no recourse for them. They had once fully armed themselves, and in a burst of desperate bravery, had resolved to find who and what the owner of this voice was, and have at least a fight. They had crossed the valley, ranged about the woodland whence the voice seemed to have come, but they never found what they sought. The shadow which pursued them on sunny afternoons had puzzled them in another way. Very persistent had been the flat black earth clinging and distorted thing which followed them so everywhere. What was this black following thing anyhow, this thing which swung its unsubstantial body around as one moved, but which ever kept its own feet at the feet of the pursued? wherever there was no shade, and which lay there beside one so persistently. But the echoes and the shadows were nothing as compared with the things which came to one at night. What were those creatures which came when a man was sleeping? Why did they escape with the dawn, and appear again only when he was asleep and helpless? At least until he woke fairly and seized his axe. The sun rose high and drooped slowly down toward the west, where the far ocean was, and the shadows somewhat lengthened. But it was still light along the forest pathways, and the untiring man still hurried on. He was now close to his country, and becoming careless and at ease. But his imagination was still busy. He could not free himself of memory. There came to him still the vision of the friend he had buried, hiding his face first of all. The frenzy of his wish for knowing rushed again upon him. Where was Oak now? he demanded of himself and of all nature. "'Where is Oak?' he yelled to the familiar trees beside his path. But the trees, even to the caveman, so close to them in the economy of wildlife, so like them in his naturalness, could give no answer. So the caveman struggled in his dim, uncertain way with the eternal question, "'If a man die, shall he live again?' So the human mind still struggles, after thousands of centuries have contributed to its development." A wall more impassable than the wall of flame, Ab had so lately looked upon, still rises between us and those who no longer live. We reach out for some knowledge of those who have died, and go almost into madness because we can grasp nothing. Silence unbroken, darkness impenetrable, ever guard the mystery of death. In the long ages since the caveman ran that day, love and hope have in faith erected, beyond the grim barriers of blackness and despair fair pavilions of promise and consolation, but to the stern examiners of physical fact and reality there has come no news from beyond the walls of silence since. We clamour tearfully for some word from those who are dead, but no answer comes. So Ab groped and strove alone in the forest, in his youth and ignorance, and in the youth and ignorance of our race. 
Upon the pathway along the river's bank, Ab emerged at last. All was familiar to him now. There, by the clump of trees in the flat below, was the place where he and Oak had dug the pit when they were but mere boys, and had learned their first important lessons in sterner woodcraft. Soon came in sight, as he ran, the entrance to the cave of his own family. He was home again. But he was not the one who had left that rude habitation three days before. He had gone away a youth. He had come back one who had suffered and thought. He came back a man. End of chapter 20